Our reading today is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the name of God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise and glory, to his praise and glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in the wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are first in hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until he acquired possession of it to the praise of his glory. Good morning. So this morning, I know it seems obvious, but I'm speaking today. Um, For those who don't know me, my name is Sam. Samuel. Thank you. Thank you, Cutter. Appreciate it. Uh, I currently serve here as an elder and part of the mission committee. Um, I was born in South Korea, raised in the States, and about two, three years before now, I mean, uh, my wife and I were serving in the Caribbean uh, with an organization called Youth with a Mission. Um, now I'm in digital marketing, which is pretty similar. Anyhow, <laughs> I just uh, I just want to thank Tommy for the uh, opportunity to share, and we are going to look at uh, Ephesians as well as two other passages. Uh, in this, but two things I want to say before we actually get into this passage. In most of our education system growing up, the measure or the metric in terms of how the person knows or is successful is based on what you know, the facts. And this is not just obviously an American education system. This is in Korean and almost everywhere else. And it's very much based on theory and how much you know. And in, in many ways, this is sort of the case, I think, within Christian churches as well. It's how much can this person uh, understand the Bible, maybe, uh, you know, say very impressive spiritual stuff, and that's somewhat of a measurement. I know that's, I mean, that's just a very rough generalization, but there is this heavy emphasis on knowledge, heavy emphasis on the know, heavy emphasis on right doctrine, right thinking, and so on. 
believing in the right way. And sometimes what happens, I think, is the right action is overlooked. And I grew up in a church like this where there is this, uh, you know, Christians were always in a conversation of getting things right. And, you know, next point is much more correct than the previous point, much more holier than the previous point. And that's sort of the environment that I grew up with. Uh, And to be honest, I was very much of that kid as well. Didn't have that many friends. Uh, Because there's nothing more annoying than a Christian who got it right, right? So many times when you're considering joining a church, I think, uh, we look at the statement of faith. You know, what they believe in. Or if you're thinking of joining a uh, seminary or 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 a uh, Christian university or whatever. You look at their statement of faith and what they believe in, and that's sort of what we measure their success or correctness or holiness or whatever. Because of this, culturally, not just in the church, we have a lot of beliefs that I think are not necessarily that, that we may not live by. It may make us feel good and you know, secure to say to others, this is what I believe, this is my faith, this is my belief, beliefies, or whatever. It's so easy to declare this within a conversation and to feel so passionate and strongly that I believe in this and so on. But in my opinion, beliefs have to be experienced, and it has to be tested. For example, I, I used to think I was a pacifist, right? I used, like, you know, pacifist who, against violence, against war, that sort of a thing. But I was really, I thought about it, and I was like, I, was, I never really met with violence. That was never tested. Nobody came to my home, tried to rob me and hurt me or hurt my family. That was never tested for me. And I can't really say I am a pacifist in that sense. Maybe I would be violent. Maybe I'll hurt them. Maybe I know Kung Fu. <laughs> I don't know Kung Fu, so don't, nobody test that after this. <laughs> I don't know anything. Okay. In that same way, I think... We know something to be true in reality of ourselves, but they have only stayed in this theoretical level and not have been really tested and experienced and and engaged. Untested beliefs. Now, in many ways, it's difficult for us to imagine God in a very tangible sense. It's the experience or the relationship. It's not there because he's invisible. He's, I can't touch him. I don't know how he feels. I don't, I don't know the taste. It's not like my kids where I can play or engage or some sort of activity that we can get into. He's all-powerful. He's everywhere. Some Christians might have believed all the right things, but have yet to have real relationship with Jesus. And then there's this sense that even though people may believe in God, he's very far from us. He's very distant. He's not here. He's not walking with me from day to day and so on. There was a time when almost everyone believed in God or God's. And then we moved to a point where, well, maybe there is a God, but... He's not here. He doesn't interfere with humanity. He doesn't care 
about what I do from day to day. And yes, there is this philosophical progression, I think culturally, not just in the Western world, but there is another, I think, society or cultural event that happens that interferes with our relationship with Jesus, and that's fatherlessness. According to the 2011 U.S. Census, one out of three live without their dads. I don't think that's much of a surprise for a lot of us. But we have this many in the population without a father. And for the ones that might have grown up, maybe they weren't the best dads. While I was in Youth with a Mission, we had a uh, training program called Discipleship Training School. And it's about five to six months in time, time frame. And uh, usually it's like early 20s, but sometimes we'll have those, you know, like um, right out of high school. And sometimes we'll have late 20s and early 30s and so on. It's a mixed bag sometimes uh, within that range. Um, But these people come, and it's a program where, you know, it's like a Bible school-ish with like two months of missions experience in a way. And people come there for a couple reasons, but I think the two main reasons is to know God and to really be involved in missions. But, and you would think that there would be a lot of super Christians who are coming to this or who wanting to be a super Christian or whatever, whatever that means. But I think we quickly realize how broken and how hurt and how much of a wound there is within their lives. And maybe they are not that super after all. But for many, they needed deep healing and we saw a pattern. It's interesting to see that if their father, their earthly father, was not a good provider for them. They struggle with the idea that God uh, can provide for you. And that goes on. If your father was not there for you, you had this hard time of believing that you can actually access God and engage with him. So we work with young people whose experience of their dads was absence to neglect even to abuse, and and there's deep scars, and you realize tremendous impact there is within the sin in their lives and from their parents. Now, imagine your perspective of God as father if you had a terrible one. You know, they come to a Christian community, and they learn, and they read Jesus teaching his disciples to pray, and he begins with, our Father in heaven. And you realize it's really difficult to really imagine God as your father because my dad was a drunk. I can't imagine God being like my dad. My dad was never there. He was abusive to me. He walked out on me when I was just a little child. And obviously, this isn't to say that all dads are terrible. I'm trying to make a point, obviously. And there's some awesome dads out there, and... If you guys don't know, next Sunday is Father's Day. So, um, You can always tell the difference when a person had an awesome dad and an awesome family. There is this sense of security. Their sense of identity is right there. 
They know where they want to go. They know what they want to do. Or if they did not have a dad, I, I would see like a very strong male model championing them, believing in them, speaking into their lives. Now, going back to the scripture, you can imagine that Paul must have spent quite a deal in looking over the scriptures or what we consider Old Testament for us and thinking of Jesus coming and being fully man and fully God with this wonderful gospel declaring the kingdom of God. And there's several different analogies describing what God was doing, not just for the Jews, but for humanity, for us, for us all. And he uses the word adoption, which I think culturally it is kind of strange for us to connect with. And he used this word adoption language to build a pretty robust theology with it. The idea of God as a father is heard in the psalmist. In, uh, let me see, do I have it here? Psalm chapter 6, 68, verse 4 to 5. In verse 5 it says, the psalmist is calling God the father to the fatherless. Jesus also tells about a loving father in the story of the prodigal son. As he describes God's compassion and grace, the younger son asked for his part of his inheritance when the dad was still alive, which is kind of rude. When his dad was still alive and the dad does it, dad actually gives it to him. And the son goes out there, spends all the money, and then doesn't have anything left. Just a real quick side note. It's very interesting to know that Eastern commentaries talks of sins of the prodigal son, and he's like, oh, he's you know, living, living it up, luxury and fancy cars or whatever, that sort of equivalent. In the Eastern commentaries, he, you know, he, the sin is equated to you know, woman and booze. That, that's what he spent on. And it's interesting sort of to get the different uh, dynamics between a Western and an Eastern interpretation of what this sin was or what he was spending his money on. But there was a famine in the land, and he's working to feed pigs. Mind you that Jesus was talking to a Jewish audience. And the significance of feeding what is considered unclean animal and longing to eat the same food as they did, you have to realize and imagine the, the, what the audience was receiving and hearing. But the son realizes and comes back to his dad, forgives, and, and the dad forgives him, and he realizes that he made a mistake. He comes to dad, and the dad just embraces him. Doesn't mention his sins. Doesn't mention his wrongs. Does not mention, you did this, you know, I was still alive. You know, I had a good few, few years left, but you still wanted to take inheritance, so on and so forth. I would have given you so much. But the dad totally hugs him and throws a party and celebrates. So again and again, there's this radical love Jesus tells where he acts it out and sort of animates as well as describe what his father is doing. And there are one more, there are more than one image of God in terms of loving and and compassion of father as Jesus described. Baxter Kruger, such a cool name, 
Baxter Kruger. He is a theologian. He's a scholar. Uh, he wrote two books called the, um, uh, the Undoing of Adam and The Great Dance. And despite the title, it's not about dancing. It's about Trinity. And he described in here, we detach God from Trinity and redefine him using descriptions of law, order, and punishment in our collective mind. God became holy only in the legal sense. And here he is, really pushing for more of an emphasis in the understanding of Dachshund. Here's another quote. Justification also so dominated the landscape of Christian thought that adoption has been marginalized. We don't hear much about our adoption at all. We hear a lot about forgiveness, but very little about the staggering reality of our inclusion in Jesus' relationship with his Father in the Spirit. And growing up, I heard so much about justification, but I think it was only a couple of seven or eight years ago that I started hearing about this adoption and and what God was doing for us and want to adopt us as sons and daughters. So here, Paul is trying to describe, Paul is trying to describe what is happening with Jesus and the event that's taking place and he's trying to articulate it and he chooses the word adoption. A powerful and illegal term. Uh, I, I believe he has it in Ephesians, Romans, and Galatians. So in Galatians, let's look at the passage. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God had sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then a heir through God. Here's Romans. It's somewhat similar. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children and heirs and heirs of God and the fellow heirs of Christ, providing we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, adoption here is a technical legal term that I think uh, Paul carefully chose. It gives the, the son who's adopted full rights to inheritance. It's a legally binding uh, agreement in a sense. And here's Paul's audience, mostly Greek Romans, right? Or culture and within that culture. And while the institution of this adoption is clearly Greek Roman, he's also pulling from the history of his people. Where God comes and delivers his people from Egypt. This act of deliverance from slavery. So, it's interesting. John and Peter actually prefer another wording, description of regeneration, to sort of portray this adoption. Paul chose a legal term, as he did with justification. And it's also interesting to know that at least uh, it was very common, this, this practice of adoption, especially in the upper classes. Um, and it was normally to free citizens, uh, conferred rights, and it also came with a list of duties as well. 
So it sort of fits in with what, what Paul is trying to describe within these this two passages, especially, as well as in Ephesians. Abba is actually interesting. It's Arabic and literally meaning my father, but taken over simply as father used in prayer and in the family circle. And the early Greek actually took that word themselves and they used, they, they used it as a common way to call God. And in Paul's image, the former slave, empowered by the Spirit, now uses to address it like a child, Abba, Father. And to oversimplify, some theologians actually say this is sort of the English equivalent of daddy. However, in this context, it's not really associated with, you know, uh, with a childhood, but more with intimacy. Paul uses the word twice, Abba. Three times it's in the New Testament. The other time is in Mark, chapter 14, verse 32 to 36. And this is right before uh, Jesus' trial and crucifixion. And he's praying in Gethsemane with his disciples. And he says, sorry, I'll just read it. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. Think I'm saying that right. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going to a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And verse 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. Not my will, but your will be done. So, Ephesians is where it gets really interesting. In chapter 1 from verse 3 to 14, it's just this one long sentence, and it's actually broken up. Uh, Sorry. Okay, sorry. Ephesians is is really interesting. Um, As I said, in Greek, it's just this one long sentence, and it's actually broken down to three sections. In each of the sections, it mentions Father first, and then Son, and then the Holy Spirit. So the first section talks about God, the Father, already chose us for adoption. Second section talks about how Jesus and the Son redeemed us. And the third section talks about the Holy Spirit and our inheritance and praising the Trinity at the same time throughout it. So all followers of Christ are born as children of God, but this talks of adoption as future and reality, something that is something that's hoped for as well as something that's already possessed. It's something that is to come. At the same time, it's something that we already possess. Uh, I don't think I had it here. Sorry. Uh, but a scholar named Peter Davids, he said, Adoption then is deliverance from the past, similar to regeneration and justification, a status and way of life in the present, walking by the Spirit, sanctification, and a hope for the future, salvation and resurrection. It describes this process of becoming a child of God and receiving an inheritance from God, end quote. Let me say that again, and I'll, 
I'll uh, sort of paraphrase or take away some stuff. Adoption then is deliverance from the past, a status and a way of life in the present, and a hope in the future. It describes the process of becoming a child of God and receiving an inheritance from God. So the plan, as Paul describes, God had planned to adopt us all along. It wasn't this, you know, God knew that humanity would crumble or fail collectively, and we could not do for ourselves in terms of reconciling ourselves with God. And there's no scene where God looks at Jesus and says, well, you know, we didn't see this coming, so let's send you in. It's not an emergency protocol that Jesus was doing this. He had planned all along. He predestined us to be adopted, to receive the sonship and daughter. Despite what some may think, and uh, growing up in church, I was told that we were created for worship, that we were created to just, you know, at the end, end of the age, you know, where we're all in heaven dressed in white robes, you know, like, holy, holy, holy. That we are created to worship this God. But it sounds, it sounds bizarre. For Let's say you're God, and like, let me just create these human beings so that they can worship me. God did not create us for worship. He created us for a relationship. He created us for adoption. Worship comes out because I'm so in love with God that it just brings it forth. My worship just comes out naturally because of my love for him. Make sense? God wants you. He wants to be your father. He wants you to be part of the family. And this type of engagement can be seen through the Bible. We see in, uh, in uh, I don't think I've had it, but in Exodus, we see the tabernacle. It's a place where God meet with us. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God is with us. And Bible's full of these stories where he is reaching to us and trying to engage and have a relationship with you, with his people. in a deeply meaningful way where it's easily understood by us. Here's Peter Rollins, a young Irish philosopher. Most of his books are interesting, but he's a philosophy major, so like, I don't understand the thing he's saying. But he says, I'm advocating means that we must accept that to be a Christian is to be born of love, transformed by love, and committed to transforming the world with love. This is not somehow done by working ourselves up and trying to find the right way of thinking and acting, but rather in letting go and opening up to the transformative power of God. In so doing, we will not merely sit around describing God to the world, but rather we will become the iconic spaces in which God is manifest in the world. 
It's very easy to sit down and just describe God. It's another thing to engage and experience and have a relationship with him. It's another thing for you to live out what it means to be a child of God. It's also easy in our skeptical and cynical world to scoff at religious cliches. And if you're not engaged with God, Jesus and Holy Spirit, most of the Christianity is just about do's and do nots for you. It's all rules. Let me say this. God's not a micromanager looking over your shoulder. He's not looking for you to make a mistake, for you to fall. It's incredible how God doesn't come out and show me all the things that is wrong with me all at one time. He's gracious. He understands. He works with us at where we are at. Everybody with me? So, God's not a micromanager looking over his shoulder. He's also not gone in the clouds waiting for you to make a mistake and shoot you with a laser gun or whatever if you screw up with a thunder in his hand or whatever. But I know some of us grew up with that. And even if some of us did not grow up in that type of church setting, there is this still sense that God is far away and he does not care and he does not want to engage with me. It takes a while to sort of get over it. It takes a while sort of to to understand and have relationship with this invisible being. We're taught to come to church, listen to the preacher or Tommy or whoever, read our Bible, read read devotions, which are experience of someone else engaging with God. We're here to, you know, listen to the preacher talking about their experiences in some meaningful way. We're taught to pray, but never to listen. Or rarely, I should say. And I think it's interesting because I think I realized in the midst of my, you know, being brought up in a very Christian, you know, my dad was a pastor, very Christian uh, setting, um, it's very tough to get that. It's really tough to get that God wants to have a relationship with you. And it's not about do's and don'ts and, you know, do this and do that. And being holy is more about, you know, Avoiding certain things. And I realize holiness is actually has more to do with how I treat others. What I do for others. More about doing than not doing. I'm going to tell you a quick story about my three-year-old. And then we'll uh, have our communion. So I think today was short. Eli... He was born in Barbados. It's a beautiful island. Um, Kizia, my wife, she decided that she's going to do, you know, all natural. And uh, 
it was 39 hours of labor. That was pretty intense. And I remember, because um, we were doing water birth, and I was, you know, right there with her, and I, I told the, uh, the nurse or the, uh, the doula or there's so many different names for these people. It takes like a village to, I guess, to uh, birth a child. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm right there, and I'm ready to catch the baby. I'm trying to remember my training. I'm trying to remember, and I remember one of the things they said. As soon as the baby comes out, say something like inviting. Say something like, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And I'm there waiting for the baby to come out. And this is 39 hours. So, I mean, I, I um, was in and out, seriously. I was, like, in and out sleeping. Because someone had to take care of the baby after my wife passes out from 39-hour labor. Someone has to take care of the child, right? So here I am getting ready, and I'm trying to remember my training. And the baby comes, and I kid you not. I was like, whoa, this child looks Asian. <laughs> and, And mind you, my wife is black, if you don't know. She's from St. Lucia, which is another island, another beautiful island. And I'm I'm preparing in my head. I'm like, oh, my gosh, okay, so this kid is going to be half and half. I'm going to be ready for it. And all I could think is, oh, my gosh, this kid looks really Chinese. (laughs) (laughs) And... uh, and the, the nurses and the doulas and the, all the other people in the room, they were like, say something. And I'm just like holding the child. I, I love you. <laughs> Beyond that, I realized how beautiful this child is despite the water retention. He was my son. Blood of my blood, flesh of my flesh. It's one thing to understand this relationship of God and Father and Son in a theoretical sense. It's another to experience it and to see my Son and to realize that I love Him more than myself. And this is how God feels about us. And this is what God wants you to experience. This adoption, this sense that I'm here for you. It's okay to make a mistake. I'm here for you. And I love you. A couple of years down the road, Eli is now one and a half. So actually not a couple of years, but... 18 months. He, uh, he learned to walk on his birthday. And uh, he can be quite adventurous, but also he's very cautious. Not now. He's crazy. This kid's crazy. <laughs> he would walk off. He thinks he's Spider-Man or something. And, and, and I remember after a couple months of learning to start to walk, and he felt confident He would, even though he's unsure of what's ahead, if I'm holding his hand, he is not afraid to go there. There's a beautiful quote by N.T. Wright. I I just remembered it. But um, 
if we really, truly love God, we live without fear. I'm paraphrasing. And as my, when Eli was one and a half, and even though he did not realize what was ahead, as long as I held his hand, as long as I was with him and he realized and he felt secure in the arms of his father, he would be not afraid to go forth and move. Do you realize how deep his love for us is? Now we're going to get ready for the communion. And as we are going into this sacrament, as we are getting into this communion, this sacred space, can you accept God as your Father and what Jesus has done for you in terms of reconciling ourselves back into this relationship? I want you guys to think about that as you are taking into this communion. If you're a believer, I want you to remember not just Jesus' sacrifice for you, but what this adoption means for you. Have you truly accepted God as your father? Have you truly lived out and worked out what it means for you to be son of God? And if you're not a Christian, and if you want to make that um, decision of accepting God as your father, let's do that. And we'll be here for you if you guys want to talk or have any questions. Third thing I want to say is before you guys take communion, let's uh, remember if there's any things within our hearts that are in the way in terms of reconciling ourselves. If you need to talk to someone, if there's any offense, if you need, if you have questions, there's also elders in the back and in the prayer room right across from mommy and me room. And... uh, Talk and offload some of your burdens. Let's pray. So, Father God, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you, Lord, for the, for the sacrifice that has been made, but I also want to thank you, Lord, that you continue to reach out to us. And I pray, oh Father, that we would be able to accept the fact of what this adoption really means for us. Not in just a theoretical sense, but what it really means for us. So I pray, oh Father. I pray against any reasoning, any thought in our heads that might hold us back from really engaging with you, O oh God. And I pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would be able to receive your love, that we may be able to receive your love in the name of Jesus. Amen.